everybody. Welcome back to the Sandcast. We are uh, coming at you from all over the U.S. right now. Uh, I'm out here in Hawaii, Travis, and our very special guest, the one and only Karch Karai, are coming to you from California. So uh, what's happening, guys? Travis, you go first. What are you up to? <laughs> uh, well, I, was, <laughs> I, had, uh, I had a time mix-up. I was in the garage, and Travis was like, you ready to go? And I had one more set left. I was like, wait, we're at four, right? And he goes, no, three. So I sprinted <laughs> up. So I, and fresh off the endorphins of, uh, of a lift from uh, Christian Hartford, which I don't know if the indoor team works with Christian or not, or if he's just no. a beach guy. No. But, um, beach guy, but he does a nice job. Yeah. yeah. So that's, <laughs> that's what I was up to. So I've, All right. Uh, so you owe him a little. Maybe uh, during this, you're going to drop and give us 20 uh, one, one of <laughs> yeah. these questions, something like that. We've we got a little makeup work to do. I, would, I got a coach I think, to keep me accountable today. <laughs> I think we should absolutely do that. We I just cannot leave you a set short. So <laughs> get it done. Yeah. Uh, here, uh, we were just talking about it before you hit record. Um, Lots of people uh, heard the news, uh, I guess it was late August, early September, that some changes happened at the home of the USA women's and men's indoor volleyball teams, uh, where a number of beach athletes have worked out over the years, actually, too, especially April, Ross, and Jake, and some others. But Mm -hmm. um, the, the business that ran the building went bankrupt, and luckily some things have been worked out so that a portion of the building has been carved out and reserved for sports. I can look out right now, if I could point the computer, which I can't because it's on hard wire. You'd see a, a bunch of um, volleyball clubs going and some basketball. There's still 12 volleyball courts here in our lifting facility and our offices and everything. So we got really lucky, didn't have to move before uh, the Tokyo Olympics, and um, this facility has been great for us over the years, and we get to stay here till at least September 30th of next year with the possibility of expanding that. All right. That's, that's good that you guys get till, uh, till September 30th, so hopefully, hopefully that is after the Tokyo Games happen. Um, Definitely <laughs> afterward. Uh, I don't see... I don't see the the start date getting screwed up again next year. Or if the, I guess if they had to delay it again, it would probably be canceled or it would be moved to another year back. I don't see how they could move it a matter of months. Okay. Yeah, I heard that it was either happening this upcoming summer, July or whenever it starts, or not at all. But I think you uh, you probably know better than me. The best information I have is people are very bullish on the Olympics happening. So I'm quite optimistic and confident that they will happen and they will happen at the time that they were scheduled to happen. Um, you know, one good sign is we have a number of players, four players from our women's team who are currently playing in the professional league in Japan, the V league, the women's oh, wow. V league. Uh, they've got matches coming up in uh, today's Thursday, so they'll play tomorrow, Japan time, and Saturday and Sunday. They usually play three days each weekend, and um, lots of people are already attending. So they, it's one of the few leagues that actually has uh, almost full spectators. We don't see that in Italy. We don't see that in Turkey or Germany or other places. So that's a good sign. Wow. Uh, I think so. Uh, I will be shocked if the Olympics don't happen at the at the normal time. The big question is, 
what will spectatorship look like? It seems like the most logical thing, especially when the V League, that professional league I just mentioned, is already accepting and allowing spectators, that they will allow spectators at the Olympics, but I'm guessing it'll be mostly in terms of um, existing residents of Japan. I don't think they're excited mm. about having people fly in from 200 countries as right. you would normally happen or 200 plus people flying in from all over the world to cheer their their countrymen and their their family and friends on. So I think they'll have it mostly Japanese fans or no fans. And since it's already happening in other sports that they have a lot of fans, my guess is that the most likely thing will be Japanese fans. Where that could be a problem is lots of people, uh, you know, don't get to go watch the USA men, the USA women, the beach teams, when they go play in Europe and elsewhere, they save up their money to go cheer their family on and friends on at the Olympics. But mm -hmm. I don't know, for example, if American family and friends will even be allowed to go. It might only be residents. Right. It's, it's definitely going to be different. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, do you think? But, but it's a good chance of it happening. So that's really good news. Yeah. You, now you've been to, how many Olympics have you been to now from the very beginning? Uh, I've been to every, I competed in three, um, attended one to do some sponsor work, attended two more as um, working the broadcast as the analyst for beach volleyball in mm -hmm. Greece in 04, Beijing 08, and then coached in London 2012 and as assistant coach and then in Rio 2016. So I've been to every Olympics starting in 1984, Dang. except the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. Wow. That's insane. <laughs> as uh, have our wife, uh, my wife and our sons, they've got a, a, a good streak going too. So we're going to, we might have be forced to break that streak next year if they don't allow um, non athletes, non coaches to, to uh, travel there and participate. Right. Do you think that it'll be, um significantly different in terms of like the player experience if they if we don't have that fan base obviously it'll be very special but do you think anything will be taken away um this might be my first olympics hopefully it is so we'll um and good luck on that on qualification i know it's a gnarly process so uh yeah. wish wish you all the best of luck and certainly Anyhow. great health in that um i'm sure there were gonna are gonna be some things that will be different I can't even tell you what now. All I know is that we're going to have to adapt. And right. we'll learn a lot more in January, maybe February, about the parameters. And even then, they could change. Uh, you know, maybe uh, faster progress on a vaccine changes some things. Maybe slower progress changes it in a different way. So, um, again, I'm, I'm pretty confident that there will be plenty of fans in the stands, which I think would be great. It would be quite strange to have an Olympics with nobody sitting live in the stands. It's pretty funny to watch, you know, like college football. You got the, the photo cutouts. My parents yeah, yeah. both went to Michigan. They said, hey, do you want to pay, you know, make a larger donation to the athletic department? We'll put your picture in the fourth row. <laughs> like, uh, no, that's not going to be the same. So hopefully it's not going to be cardboard cutouts. and It'll be a lot of live people. Again, most likely residents of Japan. Got to learn a lot more about quarantines and things like that and isolation. They recently had a, a gymnastics tournament there. 
and they went through a whole uh, special list of protocols so that could portend what happens at the Olympics. For example, each delegation, um, that is each group of gymnastics athletes and coaches from a separate country stayed on a separate floor of the hotel and then they would go down, they would always travel together. Nobody could leave the floor of the hotel as an individual. So they went <laughs> together to eat, together back up. And people would block off the elevator from the lobby. So they would only be in the elevator themselves, not with other hotel residents. Also go back down the elevator and then get onto the bus to go to training together, come back together. Uh, to competition together. So it was very restricted in that sense, but they they made a successful event happen and and uh, so whatever it's going to take, but yeah, it, we could we got to be ready to adapt a lot and be flexible. I feel like that's like the the ultimate team building exercise. <laughs> I feel like that's something that that coaches would make their teams do in the first couple days. <laughs> so right, survive together. Exactly. Yeah, like a um a, a pronounced example of that or a stark example of that would be when I was on our USA men's team in the, as we were getting ready for our first Olympics, uh, the, the coaches took the team on a really gnarly three week adventure uh, through the Canyonlands and mountains of Utah in the snow in January called outward bound. You might've heard about it before, but the gnarliest part was at the end uh, nobody could change out of clothes they'd been wearing for three weeks without a shower and they had to go straight onto the plane and fly back to San Diego. They were, <laughs> I had a conflict, so I didn't get to go, but all, most of my teammates went on that and they were just apologizing to all the people around them for, <laughs> for, for struggling massively physically and sweating in the snow for three weeks and then wearing that outfit on their flight back to San Diego. <laughs> Whatever it takes, I guess. Whatever it takes, exactly. We have heard some, <laughs> some funny stories about the trips of the old school uh, – USA indoor team. Mike Dodds told a, a couple funny ones, and and we've had Sinjin and Hav and Stoklos. They've said some funny ones. Um, but you are one of the few, if not only beach guy, who kind of was able to stick with both beach and indoor um, on that team. Now I was I, I was curious how uh, how you kind of managed to be in one of the few beach not that you're beach focused because you obviously had a, a prolific indoor career but how you managed to, to manage that balance um that you know Sinjin went full beach because um, I know he had some conflicts and Hav and Dodd both did too I think uh I can't speak for Sinjin, Hav, Mike we were all on the team together the first summer when we all tried out for the team the um the USA men uh languished for many years, even with great, great players, um, including some great Hawaiian players on the men's team, whether it was John Stanley or Pete Velasco, uh, plenty of others, they were just absolute studs. But the team really struggled because the for many years, the the model was let's get the guys together for a couple of weeks and then go play the Olympics. Meanwhile, all the other, all the really good teams were together essentially year round. 
And so finally, USA Volleyball recognized we cannot just put together an all-star team for two weeks and expect to compete against the best in the world who've been together for years and years, most of each year. So in 1977, they formed the first ever national training center where it, was, it became a year-round program. It was in Dayton, Ohio. Um, some of the California guys went back there. They were miserable in the, in the winters of Dayton. Uh, meanwhile, the women were practicing in Texas starting around 76. Um, but just being together started things going. And then in 1981, uh, four years after the establishment of that Dayton Center, it was moved to San Diego, and that was a big deal to get it closer to the West Coast where a lot of the best players were. So a ton of us went to try out for the team in May of that year, like Steve Timmons, Pat Powers, Dusty Dvorak, Hav, Dodd, me, um, uh, Sinjin, and others. And so we spent that first year on the team. Then I went back to school. Uh, so each guy had to make his own decision. But the bottom line was the coach at that time, Doug Beal, was just his belief was, uh, I'm not going to let you guys play much beach volleyball. We are ranked 19th in the world. We've got to spend 49 or 50 weeks a year together if we're going to have any shot at a medal in the Olympics in three years in Los Angeles. So, sorry, I, I know you might want to play a lot of beach volleyball or even some, but it's not going to happen. So I played one tournament in three years, and I just knew that was – uh, a price or a sacrifice that I had to make to stay with the team, to be, to try to make the Olympic roster and play in the Olympics. Everybody had to make their own decision on that. Uh, and it would be one that I would do again. Yeah, it was hard. I missed beach volleyball for those three years. And then after that, Marv Dunphy, who took over as head coach, was a little more forgiving and would let me play five, six, seven events a year. Uh, which was more than one in three years. But um, I can't fault Doug for that because ultimately the results spoke for themselves. We did pull our way up from 19th ranked in the world eventually over about a four-year period to number one in the world. And that we, we were uh, young, raw, great potential, but we needed a ton of work together. Yeah, and, and uh, I know that because I was actually I talked to Doug not too long ago about it and he was even saying he's like you know if I were those guys I don't know if I would have listened to me either because I didn't have much coaching experience but I just came along and he actually uh he sent me uh the book that he wrote on his experience coaching that team um so I'm excited to read it but um I mean we've seen it the USA training uh program has come such a long way like you said that you know you guys were the usa program was sort of languishing and that was the first training center and now you guys are in are in anaheim we're both you know both the men's and women's teams are phenomenal and you've had such a cool perspective because you, you've seen it at every step of the way in every facet of the game you've been a player in it on both the beach and the indoor sides you've seen the beach game go from an Olympic qualifier to now try can speak very well to the qualification we have, system we have now. Um, how has it been for you to kind of experience this at every single level of the game? Well, it's a interesting evolution. Like I said, in the fifties and sixties and first six years, seven years of the seventies, the model was all-star team, two weeks, train, go play. Olympics, world championship, mostly get our butts kicked. 
So had to do something different. So then, so then they made the rule, they swung all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And that is we need to be together all the time. No beach tournaments, no professional uh, play in clubs overseas. And so that was another thing that we faced. Uh, we were forced into a choice. Uh, if you want to go play in Italy or some other professional league, you know, the men and the women now are all over the world playing in, in countries in Europe, Asia, Brazil, elsewhere. But our choice, we didn't have that choice. The rule was if you go play professional club volleyball, you are off the team. You cannot, no matter how good you are, you cannot be on the team and go to the Olympics. And I understand why they did that. We had so much ground to pick up and cover to get to be an Olympic medal contender, that that rule stood for about eight years. But once the team had reached a really consistent, high uh, sustained competitive excellence, high sustained competitive level, they backed off. And so now we're at the model we see where uh, indoor players spend about half their year playing professional volleyball overseas and half the year with the team. That's the compromise. And that allows both the men and the women to make uh, hopefully the best living they can in, in the indoor side of the sport because USA Volleyball doesn't have the money to pay them anything like they would earn overseas. And so they spend about six months with us, six months with the others. And then that leads to the challenge of playing volleyball almost all year round, playing two seasons and playing almost full-time volleyball. So a big part of the programs now are just managing the challenge of that massive volume of training and playing that they do. For sure. When I think about you guys as a generation, like it kind of blows my mind with how much, uh, like reps you guys have put on your bodies. Like when we talked to, you know, Hav and Dodd and them, they're like, oh yeah, we just show up at 8 a.m. and then play till the sun goes down. <laughs> Whereas like nowadays we're out there two hours. We're like, oh, I don't know if I want to overdo it uh, with a little hour session in the evening. And it's like the, I don't know, it doesn't even seem logical to us now to, to do what you guys did. But then at the same time, it's like you guys did it and you did it for years and you guys were the top in the world. So I don't know if there's a right or wrong, but do you kind of, it's interesting because you've been a part of the sport, whether it's playing or coaching the entire time. So like, what's your perspective on that? The load management, I guess. You just reminded me, um, I mentioned how early on um, uh, that first summer that the U.S. men moved from Dayton to San Diego so what, what we would do, we were just sleeping on people's floors. We didn't have an apartment or anything. We would just crash wherever. <laughs> um, and so what we would do, we had to work out really hard with the USA men. So we would train from eight to 12, four hours of gnarly practice. Like it was heavy duty. Then we would do 45 minutes of uh, plyos. Um, on the hardwood floor and that was gnarly too and then we would be free until the evening for lifting so in between because we didn't have much else to do the guys who were into beach volleyball Hav, Dodd, Sinjin, me we would drive straight to the beach grab a sandwich eat it uh, and then jump in the water with our USA training gear on 
um, lay that out on the sand to dry, put the our laundry. playing our playing bathing suit on, and then we would play all afternoon and just go at each other because we were two of the the best teams. Right. So after four hours of training, almost an hour of plyos, we would play uh, another three or four hours in the afternoon and then go lift in the evening. And we did that five days a week. <laughs> People would, like a trainer would, would tell you, you're being crazy right nowadays. They're like, you guys are doing it all wrong. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, just one simple thing, doing plyos after four hours of gnarly training is probably heresy. It's craziness. Like right. <laughs> we were doing things, uh, you know, those old uh, metal chairs that they used to maybe set up in your high school when you'd have an assembly. Those, and, and when they fall down, they're really yeah. loud, those yeah. metal chairs. We would set those up seven in a row and we had to um, plyo bound over those and uh, that worked great until somebody caught an edge and slid right down his shins oh, on the edge of yeah. the metal chair we didn't do any more metal chairs after that but we made them last about a year and um uh but that's the thing you don't do plyos when you're when you're you've already done four hours of volleyball. You need to be doing plyos when you're fresh, but we didn't know any better. The coaches right. didn't know any better. None of us knew any better. We did the best we could. And again, can't fault it now because the results were uh, really strong. We pulled ourselves right. up from um, one of the lower ranked teams in the world to become the, the best team for about four years. And uh, I played till I was 46 last year on the AVP tour, 46. Um, since then, certainly developed some hip pain and, you know, just wore away a lot of the cartilage. So three years ago, I had my left hip re replaced. One year ago, my right hip replaced. I can, I now have no pain, feel great. I could play some volleyball. Um, would I do it all over again in a heartbeat? Absolutely. So I'm not saying that as a complaint at all that I've had, I now have two artificial hips. That's just the price that I was willing to, and I would again, be willing to pay for the honor of competing and coaching in this game as long as I have. It's been an amazing, amazing uh, opportunity for me. This game has, has, has been, uh, has meant so much to be able to compete on the AVP tour and in high school and at UCLA and internationally, both indoors and out, what wonderful opportunities. Is there one part of it that you feel like is like more you like the indoor part or cause I, I believe you started on the beach, right? In Santa Barbara with your dad. Uh, for me, I started on the beach as well. I think that's kind of rare, especially for people that go to indoors, at least nowadays. Um, did you feel like beach was always your sport and then you kind of went through the indoor pipeline because you were good at it or was it more like you fell in love with that and then or like was there one that you loved more for me I've always loved beach even when I was playing indoor and doing well I was a beach guy um, but I obviously didn't have the success that you had indoors so how, what was it like for you uh I think the answer would be different at different times in my career. So like mm. you said, I started early. I was six years old, started bopping the ball back and forth with my dad who played in his native country, Hungary. And he was on the junior national team there. And then he brought his love for the game to the United States when he escaped uh, the failed revolution there and came to make a new life for himself here. So, um, 
th when I was growing up in the Stone Age days of volleyball, uh, there were no, there was no club volleyball. There were no junior clubs. There were no junior tournaments. Actually, I think I got to play one tournament one time. Uh, they put together this weird 15 and under tournament, and I played it when I was 13 years old. But other than that, I played strictly uh, there was no such thing as junior or youth volleyball. And so I played uh, right from the start uh, against grown men. But I think it was uh, great for me because, uh, first of all, um, my dad and I were huge fans of volleyball, so we would try to track it, but there was no internet and no volleyball magazine or anything like that. There yeah. was a rare article in Sports Illustrated on volleyball one time on one of the all-time greats. Uh, American greats, Larry Rundle, who happened to be one of the best ever at both beach and indoors. He was really, really good. Um, another would be Gene Selznick, who were great on both surfaces and in both games. But we read that he had set the record for, uh, Larry Rundle had, for being the youngest ever to play in an adult tournament at, third, at 11. So we figured, all right, we got to match that. So <laughs> yeah. played in first tournament at 11. Um, loved playing with my dad. He was my first partner for those four years. And the beauty of it is, of course, that no grown man ever wants to go back to his friends and say that he lost to an 11-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid. That is just right. not going to happen if he can avoid it. So they were relentless and merciless on me. That's the best thing that could possibly have happened. They served mm -hmm. me every ball I wasn't tall enough or jumped high enough or strong enough to hit hard or to hit down. I had to figure out different answers. And it was uh, the best thing that could have happened to me that they would, they were not letting up on me at all because nobody wanted to lose to some punky little kid. <laughs> um, but it helped me get better a lot faster. And then I got to high school. I started playing indoors. I think my, my uh, favorite game was still beach at that time, but then started feeling more even about it as I was playing indoors at UCLA. And then I, um, like I said, had to give up beach for a while to, to really focus on the indoor game with USA. So uh, indoors was my, my first love. Then I retired from the team uh, around 30, 29, 30 years old and um, focused strictly on beach volleyball. So for the next 20 years, 18 years, beach was my favorite. And now, and I love both games, always have. But if I had to pick a favorite now, it would probably be indoors just because I'm so utterly immersed in indoor right. volleyball coaching the USA women. So you just bounce back and forth. Would you say it's basically you're just chasing like the highest level of competition? Because at some points, I feel like the beach, when it, it's gone through the highs and lows, but there were certain points where if you're a volleyball player, you want to be out on the beach. It seems like. Um, I loved, uh, there are some things I will always love about the, the beach game. One of them is you just have to be a lot more self-sufficient. You make your own travel arrangements. You got to figure out the rental car, the Uber and the hotel and all of that stuff. And you also in to a much greater extent, especially when for most of my career I was playing, there weren't really many volleyball coaches. So if I could be a kind of player coach, pseudo coach, if I could organize our training 
better than other people and not just sit at the beach and play all day long. Uh, if I could help uh, use what I had learned from great coaches indoors and make the, the beach training more efficient and not have to stay there all day and get a great amount of work done in two or three or three and a half hours, then still have lots of time for other things, raising family, lifting, all the, all the other things that go with it. So I took pleasure in that responsibility. Um, and I think it helped me a little as I made the transition from player to coach. But whatever level I was at as a player or a coach, uh, the thing that drives me is just this hunger to pursue mastery. It's, I guess I would equate it to somebody who um, is in a martial art, I don't know, karate, Aikido, uh, jiu-jitsu, whatever, and they pursue it over a long period of time and they're always working to get better. And then as soon as they might get their first degree black belt, they don't just quit and, and say that's enough. Uh, they start training for their second degree black belt. And so it's the same for people who've been in the game a long, a long time. Certainly the same for me that whatever level I'm at, I'm hungry to get to a better level. How's it going, Sandcast peeps? Just wanted to take a quick break in the show to let you know about a holiday savings opportunity presented to you by our friends over at Wilson Sporting Goods. Here's the deal. You buy two OPTX, also known as Optics Beach Volleyballs, you get one 35% off. Basically, if you spend $100 on volleyball, basketball, football, or soccer products, you'll receive a 35% off coupon in the new year. In Optics Volleyball right now is $64.99. So if you buy two, you get a 35% off coupon emailed to you in January. Solid deal there from our pals over at Wilson. So get on it and uh, hook your friends up with a volleyball or two. All right, back to the show. We're not going back to the show just yet. I have a word from one more of our sponsor. This one from Kamena Outdoor. Uh, Dave Kamena is a long time volley enthusiast he is a huge supporter of the game so for that reason alone you should support Kamena outdoor uh, but for another legitimate reason is that he makes some of the best backpacks in beach volleyball he's been working on this thing for 17 years making modifications to make it the best backpack possible delaney has one it's sitting in the closet right next to me it's fantastic it has all these perfect pockets for your sunscreen for your volleyball for your extra board shorts or bikinis whatever it may be i highly recommend the kamena outdoor backpack it makes for a fantastic christmas present and it's one of those backpacks where you only have to buy one you can buy the really cheap ones that are made in china and they only last like six months or a year before the sun beats them up and the rain takes them down but the Kamena Outdoor Backpack is perfect for beach volleyball because it lasts forever, literally forever. So head out to Kamena Outdoor and get a great Christmas present for the beach volleyball enthusiast. And now, back to the show. Where do you think that, uh, that hunger comes from? I mean, you mentioned your dad obviously had quite an interesting upbringing, you know, escaping the, the revolution in, in Hungary. Um, was he, I'm sure that he was probably a, a pretty competitive guy as well um, and maybe maybe you got it I feel like playing in adult tournaments at 11 could go one of two ways right you could respond the way you did and you're like all right like I'm tired of getting my butt beat by all these older guys um, but if you didn't have that sort of like competitive gene you could have just been like kind of walked away defeated like I'm never going to beat these guys I'm wondering where where you kind of first discovered that 
that gene that you have? Were you just hunger for mastery? That's a good question. Um, I think part of it is my dad was really competitive. Um, if you were to go down to East Beach in Santa Barbara, I'm sure you would still find some people who used to play with him. He had to give up the game probably 15, 20 years ago. It just, it got, he got too achy uh, late in his 60s, early 70s. Um, but he was a fixture down there and he was relentless and just so passionate. He was a doctor, uh, but most of his patients didn't know that he was wearing his bathing suit under his coat and tie. And then he'd get down there and they had a great rule in Santa Barbara where they reserved a lot of the courts for quote nooners, people who um, had a more normal job and who only had an hour, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes to get down to the beach, get games in. They, it didn't matter how good you are, you could be the best player on the planet. If you were on one of those courts, you had to vacate the court and let the, the guys on their lunch hour and the ladies on their lunch hour to come down. So a lot of people there would say, you would hear my dad, my dad's name is Laszlo, Laz for short, but they would, you would hear him before you saw him down there because <laughs> he was always just yelling out and he had this, he still has this Hungarian accent. He'd say, jump and hit that ball, Karch, or rise and sink. <laughs> These crazy, fun things that he would say. And so I was a really quiet player because we played tournaments the first four years that I played and he did all the talking he, and, and I just let him talk and I was just trying to figure things out against these grown men who were going at me hard. But um, those, uh, I, I think his competitive nature helped me rise to the task of grown men coming at me. I didn't ever get frustrated with it. And, and, and I can't say that like we were, as soon as we entered a tournament, we weren't losing 15, zero. This was old side out scoring. We, the very first tournament we played in, we lost 16, 14, 17, 15, uno, dos, adios. But it was, um, it was igniting in my passion just to be able to play grown men that close at 11 years old even it didn't hurt my feelings. It didn't deflate me at all that we lost those games. What excited me is how well we did. And so uh, already in the first tournament I ever played, we were content. And this was at the lowest level. This wasn't opens. It wasn't double A, A, B, or even B. It was novice tournaments, but there were good players in all those levels. And so um, part of it was his relentless drive, um, also it was something that I could see I was pretty good at already. And so you tend to enjoy things that you're better at. And as you guys know, it, and this is true for women also, but it is just not easy for a boy to grow up, to be a good man, a good husband, a good dad, a good son, um, it's not easy for girls to grow up to be good women, good wives, good mothers either. But it was a great gift to me that on at least one small level, I could stand toe to toe with grown men, even though I was only 11 years old. In, in most other ways, I was not anywhere near uh, as being a peer to them, but it kind of gave me a head start in making that move toward uh, that difficult growth uh, and mature and maturing process to become a good man or to s strive to become a good man. So 
uh, those things I think were big in not being deflated at all that guys were coming at me. I was like, yeah, great. This is fun. Bring it on. Yeah. Not like cocky or anything, but just like, I love that they're challenging me. I want to see what I can see, how I can measure up to this challenge. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. That's funny. It brings to mind, uh, like I still say to this day that my biggest win of my career is the daddy Hain foreman, uh, in honor of Tom Hain over at Outrigger when I was like, I think I was like the first one of our group to win it as the open. And it was like, it blew my mind because I'm playing against really good players. And, and I was like, I'm good at beach volleyball. Like after that, in my mind, it was like, this is my sport. I'm good at beach volleyball. I can hold my own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I've had obviously bigger wins since then, but if that hadn't happened, I don't know where I'd be at now. You know, it, it kind of just like snowballed in my head that I've always just thought I'm an elite beach volleyball player. And that's, that's where I can kind of separate myself. Love it. And thank you for bringing up. I, I talked before about Hawaiians. How dare I not bring up daddy <laughs> Hain? Love him. Love uh, Mark and, and the whole family. And he's just an epic legend. He's one of my all time favorites. And so got to know him because I would come out some summers and spend a little time at the, mm -hmm. at the Oak club and people play with, uh, with daddy Hain and with like Charlie Shaw and, uh, or sorry, no, Charlie, Jenkins. Charlie Jenkins. Yeah. And, um, uh, Peter Ehrman and Peter Balding and Dave Shoji probably. Um, and Mark Kane and just lots of great, great players there. It was a really fun time. I played with Hovland in the state open one and we won that one year at, at the wow. Outrigger club. So that was, it went really long. We played under lights and it was, it was really fun. Those are all the guys that I, grew up under I grew up with their kids yeah uh, and they were kind exactly. of the uncles like especially Mark Hain I I spent way too many nights at, actually I was at his son's house <laughs> last night for a barbecue um so I gotta give him credit for a lot of uh a lot of my absolutely coaching well, as well paddler volleyball player everything my gosh he's a stud never forget for sure. uh, Mark Hain taking me out I think taking me and maybe Peter Ehrman or maybe just me out for because uh, the waves were pretty good we went out in a canoe yeah. And Hainer's like, come on, paddle, you guys. And yeah. we're just trying to paddle. And I got nothing. I got nothing. I didn't grow up paddling. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden, like I'm, I'm sideways paddling along, and all of a sudden, whoosh, whoosh, he, he started yeah. paddling, and he almost threw me backwards out of the boat, and we caught the wave and got a great ride. But he was gnarly. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's, that's my childhood in a nutshell right there. <laughs> <laughs> did you uh did you play any other sports growing up or was it pretty played much played a ton of soccer growing up my dad played soccer too so um i played ayso and club soccer i played a little bit of little league baseball a little bit of tennis i did swimming at the ymca in michigan where you kind of start as a guppy and work your way up to to sh dolphin or shark um <laughs> What else did I do? Uh, yeah, I, I did a lot of different things. And then when I got to probably 10th grade in high school is when I finally settled down. But I'm really thankful, especially uh, for all those experiences, but especially for playing a lot of soccer. I think it helped me be a better volleyball player because um, in soccer, one of the big things is how do you make your teammate better? Very, uh, very often, it's not to pass right to him 
It's to see where he is, where the defender is, and then put him in a better space, lead him into open space. And the theory that applies to volleyball is, you know, like if I try and I are teammates, I don't want to pass the ball to him if the serve comes to me. I want to put the ball in exactly the right spot that's going to make it easiest for to lead him to the spot that's going to make it both easiest for him to set and for me to hit his set. And so there's some great theories I learned just from soccer and whether it's sand volleyball or doubles or sixes, so much of the game is we're not putting it to someone right to them. We have to put it in a better place and let them go to play the ball in that place, whether it's on the first contact or the second contact. So I think that really uh, uh, helped me in lots of ways in figuring out the most efficient ways uh, in terms of where to put the ball and make people around, help people around me be better. Do you think that that, cause there, I mean, when you look at your resume on the beach and indoors, I mean, you, you have won more than anyone who's played this game. Do you think that being a partner is, is maybe the most important skill a player can develop? Because, I mean, you won with all different types of personalities. You know, your, your dad, you know, down to Sinjin and Kent and Brent. Um, and then you won indoors, uh, Seton. And do you think that being a good partner, one, is – is maybe the most important skill and to something that you can cultivate and learn how to do just like any other skill, be it serving or passing. I, I, I say yes and no. And the reason I say yes is uh, one of the beauties of beach volleyball is it's just you and your partner and there's no substitutes. And especially internationally, there's no coaching allowed. You've just got to figure it out. And if somebody's struggling, you don't get to do what I do as a get to do as a coach and make a substitution. There's not seven other people waiting to come on the court in the various positions. Um, so you have to be incredibly self-sufficient and quick to make adjustments or the game can get out of control in a hurry. And so that's where there's a great demand for being a, a good teammate and a good partner uh, because you two just have to figure it out. And I love that about beach volleyball. On the other hand, uh, I guess where I'd say no is I've seen some really successful partnerships. I saw a, a pair of Swiss brothers who never spoke to each other. <laughs> they figured out that they were better off, they fought so much that they were better <laughs> off not even speaking to each other, never uh, socializing, never anything. And yet they won tournaments and they were really good. So I've seen great teams where the guys and the ladies, the women are really close and great teammates and love each other and they're good friends too and i've also seen it where very good teams couldn't stand each other basically so um but they even then they still even if they're not talking they still had to figure out how to help the other person be better in the cauldron of fierce competition at a tournament like the world championships or the olympics did you ever have a partnership that or i guess teammates that wasn't uh, like positive and, you know, friendly at most of the time? I think the, um, 
always got along with my teammates. Um, I think I had a ton of success playing with Kent Steffes, but he and I were very different people. So we did not spend a lot of time together. First of all, geography prevented that. He lived in Santa Monica. I lived in San Clemente. Uh, so we were like an hour and a half apart. So neither of us were going to just drive up to have dinner with the other one. Right. Also, I um, was married and had two young kids going through the phase you're going through right now. Try, you know, maybe <laughs> we had a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And so mm -hmm. they're 18 months apart. So it's a very different lifestyle than Kent had, who was not married and not a parent. So uh, we were just in really different places in our lives. It didn't mean we were hostile to each other. We were just really, really different people. And we figured out a way to make it work great. But we, except on weekends at tournaments, we didn't spend a lot of time hanging out. And basically, um, one week on Wednesday, he would drive down to San Clemente. I'd have our the people we'd work out with. Um, organized and so we play together on Wednesday one week in San Clemente and then the next week I would drive up to Santa Monica and we would alternate so we would mm -hmm. spend one day a week which in this day and age I don't think would be enough but back then it was enough because we still had so many good people to play so on the other days he would play at State Beach with his crew or train with his crew and mm -hmm. I would train in Santa in South Orange County with my crew uh, people like Adam Johnson and others. And so we, we got a lot of good workouts, but we didn't spend, uh, we both played for so long that I guess we could get away with not playing together more than one day a week. Right. Training together more than one day a week. For sure. Have you, uh, I don't know if you're on Facebook. Have you seen uh, Kent? He's like had this series of write-ups on Facebook and they're like brilliant. He's just kind of doing this deep dive into sort of like how to become a winner and just kind of his thoughts throughout kind of the Olympic games in his career. I don't know if you've, you've seen him. I think somebody sent me one of those, but I have not seen the series and I've heard some good feedback on it. Yeah. It's uh, cause it's cause Kent's always been sort of uh, kind of closed off to kind of doing things in the media or just sort of opening up. It's been really interesting to see his mindset. Cause he, I mean, his the percentage of tournaments that he played and won is astounding. And I know from what I've read, he seemed to kind of usher in, you kind of mentioned it earlier, this era of efficient training instead of playing from eight to five. I was like, well, why don't I just get a bag of balls and hit a hundred serves and pass a couple hundred balls and call it in two hours. Was that something that, that you guys sort of kind of brought in to the game? That's, I mean, now it's, it's commonplace. Um, I would say, let's see. When did we start playing together? I think people were doing it before Kent and I did it uh, in terms of not sitting, not playing at the beach all day and holding court and just taking all challengers. I think, uh, but we probably took it to a different level in terms of finding uh, the best help we could for uh, you know, like a strength and a strength and conditioning coach, a fitness coach, things like that, and trying to be more efficient because if you hold court all day, uh, and people are waiting for their turn to to challenge and take winners, uh, you're going to get a varying level of competition. But if we organize it and just get two other good teams and say let's do this for three hours, we can get a higher level of training. Than, than taking all comers. So it was a combination of things. But 
we weren't the first to do it. Uh, I certainly tried to adapt some things from indoor training, but I think maybe we, we honed it and made it a better, uh, I guess, a better formula for success to allow ourselves a time for the other things that we needed to do to try to be great. Yeah. Probably a little more family friendly too with a couple of kids. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Karch, how, how tall are you? I am about 6'2", a little over 6'2". I used to be 6'3", but after 30 years of high-level volleyball, I think all of my discs in my back got yeah. uh, compressed a little bit, and so lost about an inch over the years. Wow, that's crazy. That 6'3", dang, I was saying at least 6'4". But, like, when I think back, I mean, it was different generation. The players are built differently. But do you feel like you were – undersized or do you feel like your competition on the highest stage uh, had an advantage in terms of physical attributes like nowadays I feel like I'm a small blocker at 6-5 on the tour uh, where do you feel like you stood and and did you feel like you had a disadvantage at, at times like you had to work harder because you, you were at a disadvantage with your size was Kent this similar yeah he but, was about 6-3 I think um, um Good question. Um, I think the tallest players for I, I played through a lot of different generations. Right, I mean, right, right. Uh, at That's first, true. there was uh, Jim Mangus, uh, Tom Shamalis, Andy Fishburn, uh, Fred Sturm generation, and then there was the Sinjin, uh, Hav, Stokey. Um, uh, Brian Lewis, Scott Akatubi, Fro generation, and yeah. then there was the Mike Lambert, um, Todd Rogers, Dax Holdren generation, and then <laughs> there and Sean Scott, who was a great player, yep. uh, and then Phil Dahlhauser. So I worked through a lot of iterations on that. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, that's and true. On, I felt shorter and shorter. So <laughs> Phil made me feel quite short. Especially when he was blocking across the net, yeah. and I'm that's where I started. He's I six nine. <laughs> so, um, and the rules changed too. <clears throat> I think Sinjin was a driver in this. He he played a big role internationally, and I think with the best of intentions, um, around the end of the century. A couple of big changes happened. Number one was rally scoring, mm. and the other was shrinking the size of the court down. Uh, and those were meant, uh, the shrinking the court down, I think, was to try to foster longer rallies, mm. uh, to, because those are some of the, probably the most exciting plays in volleyball, whether it's beach or indoors. Mm -hmm. And um, the rally scoring was to try to help the game be more consistent in terms of how long a match would last. It would become more television friendly. Right. But I think the, uh, oh, and then there was the let service rule too. Um, and uh, I, I think the sad part of shrinking the court down is that like Sinjin is one of the all time, one of the greatest players ever. I think when you shrink the size of the court down, height becomes more of an advantage. Mm. 
and it reduces the chances. It doesn't make it impossible, but it reduces the chances a little of the next Brian Lewis or the next Sinjin to come around. And because those are the those are spectacular players, people who were Brian Lewis fans, and I was one, uh, were at 6-1 or maybe not even 6-1, were just astounded at what he would do on a volleyball court. Loved mm -hmm. seeing that. But as you as you shrink the court down, the block become plays a larger role, and then it becomes more advantageous to be six foot nine. Um, the great blockers in the middle of my career were people like or uh, or like Mike Whitmarsh at six five six six. Your height, uh, really right. really good blockers, but there weren't as many tall players. I think the tall players came in once the 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 court size shrunk down. Right. Um, I think there was a real, it was an art and a skill to try to cover the larger size court with some of the great jump servers uh, who hit the ball really hard at times, like Adam Johnson, mm -hmm. Canyon Seaman, Dane Blanton, Brian Lewis, Scott Akatubby, Brent Frohoff. There was a whole skill just in not getting aced when there was three <laughs> more feet of court wide and three more feet deep. Mm -hmm. and the people who could do that, um, and that is generally a little bit of a smaller player also, somebody right. who can read the server better and explode out to the side and maybe just get one arm, but just keeping it alive uh, was a, a skill. Uh, not getting aced was a skill. And so it's harder to be um, as good a server with that smaller court, and then height also helps with that equation too. Right. Yeah. So it's just changed and you have it's, to just adapt. I don't know if it's better. It's just different. At first, yeah. I hated the smaller court. I'm fine with it now. At first, I hated rally scoring. I'm fine with it now. I'm still not a huge fan of the let serve rule. I, I hate seeing I'm, – I'm more okay with it indoors than I am on the beach. Like, there's no setter yeah. standing near the net when right. you hit a serve and it just dribbles over. Right. That's not so much a – a, um, uh, a play of skill as it is a play of luck. The yeah. good news is there were often some arguments, uh, heated ones. Did the serve touch the net or did it not touch the net? So it's taken, there's a positive in that. It took the referee out of that equation, mm -hmm. which I think is a good thing, but still not a huge fan of the let serve rule on the beach. I love, I think there was something you guys do on the AVP where there's yeah. a modification and you can't end uh, match the point or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And I also like the freeze, frankly, uh, that I think that's fun too, to have to earn the last point. Um, there was a whole, uh, and that's lost somewhat in the game now, but inside out volleyball, because the side out was so strong, on the beach with three, you know, with a 30 by 30 court instead of 26 by 26. And indoors, there was just a different mentality. And you could go 10 minutes at a time with no point being scored. Side out, side out, side out, side out. So when a ball came up on your side, it was like discovering gold. And you, <laughs> you had to cherish this thing and be great with it and put that ball somewhere where your partner could take a good swing. Mm -hmm. And if you overset it, it was a, a like a, a horrible sin 
or if you set it 12 feet off, it was yeah. a horrible waste of this little uh, fleck of gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if people cherish those opportunities as much because, you know, now it's easier to score a point. You side out and score a point. They were just harder to score. And I loved also the mentality like, um, uh, Ken and I were playing a tournament one time and it was in Clearwater, I think, and it was against two great jump spin servers at the time, Canyon Seaman and Dane Blanton, and they were just serving the crap out of the ball. And uh, we just didn't have answers for them. So it's a single final and they're up 13 to eight. This is side out scoring. And somehow, and Kent and I were pretty good at this, somehow we, we bore down and we, got a little better at our side out game. And we, and the beauty of side out is that you could chip away, chip away, 13, eight, score one, six side outs, maybe score another one. And there were no free points. You didn't serve out and get a point. And so eventually, uh, many minutes later, we ended up winning 15 to 13. Canyon was really pissed that we came back and won. And so he went back to count and he said, Karch, do you realize how many times you guys sided out in a row? I said, no, how many? He said, you guys sided out 37 times in a row. And that's <laughs> how you beat us after we were up 13-8. And there was a mentality that went along with that that I love, that if you could bear down, you could still have a pretty reasonable chance of coming back at 13-8. And that's a tougher thing to pull off without a freeze in yeah. rally scoring. That freeze rule really has changed the game. And it's, it's funny because it's just such a small part of the match. But if you're up three, you're like, there's a really good chance we're going we're gonna to win this match. But Absolutely. being up three and a good server's on the other side, you are not safe in any way, shape, or form. And exactly. I, I think yeah. that's what Donald was going for. I was, um, a number of years ago, I worked with some people to create a, a kind of a grassroots tour, um, not top, uh, not top tournaments uh, called the Corona wide open tour. And we used the freeze on that. And at first it wasn't so well received, but I really liked the idea of it in that you're still alive and, and mm -hmm. people love comebacks when it's yeah. late. That's exciting. Tries down 14, 11 and the third, wait a minute, he's chipping away. They're still way alive on this. All they got to do is just side out and yeah. they can make this last a lot longer. And those are the most fun parts of, of any match. So I love that the AVP is doing that now. And I think it adds great excitement and interest for fans. I feel like the fact that you guys, that's like where your guys' mind was at during your generation was like thinking of the sport as a business. You guys created so much opportunity. You took over tours at some points. And I feel like that's a big thing that separates your generation from ours. And I'm trying to be one of the guys that kind of changes it is, is thinking more broadly and outside of just being a player. But what do you think um, started that with you guys? Like how you guys just saw opportunity, I guess, to make, to make more money. Cause like in our sport now, if you're doing well off the court, which not many people are in terms of sponsorships and whatnot, you can double your income. You can yep. double everything you're doing on the court, but I just don't think people Big have part of it. Um, I think there are positives and negatives to that one too. Um, when 
I was um, Cuervo had a number of events. One of the probably the first big event in beach volleyball was the Cuervo World Championships held at Redondo Beach at the lagoon there. I forget the the name of that lagoon, but yeah, it was the Cuervo World Championships, and it was a prestigious event. It was one of the only ones that had a little bit of prize money. It would be the biggest prize money event of the year. Um, and the promoter was doing a nice job gaining some interest in the sport. Uh, so the things were growing. The thing that players got really frustrated with is that they decided that, that for, for many, many years, for decades, the fixture as ter in terms of the ball we used was the Spalding Top Flight 18 panel. That was just like, that was the ball. Um, but in the promoters' efforts to build the game, they decided to go with a different ball company. And it was an old Mikasa that was a suede ball, and it would pick up tons of water because of the suede uh, surface. And it would get really heavy, and guys started um, accusing it of causing this heavy ball of causing people shoulder problems. And so there ended up being a falling out. I, I can't say that the the promoters were bad people or anything like that. It was just a difference of opinion, but the players got really, really heated about it. And so I finished playing in the Olympics in 84 in August, and then the Cuervo World Championships was just weeks later. And so I wanted to go back out and play. I had only played in one tournament in three years. And I'm all excited to play, and I go out and I hear from Hav and Dodd and Sinjin and everybody, no, we're boycotting. We, we need to uh, grab control back of this thing. And I'm like, all right, I'm with you guys. So if that's what we're going to do, that's what we're going to do. Um, so there was some certainly some contentious issues. But over the course of time, the players, in a sense, took it back over uh, with a player-led organization, the AVP. But in other ways, it was really difficult because no matter what the formula was, it, it was a really tough formula to be a winning, a successful business. I can't say that in all those years I was on the tour that the tour ever actually um, made a profit or even broke even. For many years, it was the Miller Light Tour. And at the end of the season, whatever the losses were, Miller Light was... Uh, nice enough to write a check for the difference. Uh, um, so in that sense, while the players took a lot of initiative, I don't know that it led to a much more successful business model. And then on the other side of things, some guys were really good at marketing themselves, as a number of you guys are now, using social media and others to, to amplify or... Um, supplement income. So very often in, in many of the years I played, and even now, as you're saying, uh, prize money was only a fraction of the income for the average professional volleyball. And sometimes the professional volleyball, the prize money income is so small that players have to be good at marketing themselves and supplementing just so that they can make, make a reasonable living. But uh, the business side of it, some people have been really good at, but it's, it's always been, it's never been an easy thing. Just like you see indoors, it's not easy to create a successful professional league indoors either, one that, that is sustainable. 
Yeah, we uh, when we had Randy on, he was talking about his sponsorship with uh, Fila, and the numbers he was throwing out were it was insane. I mean, what was because beach volleyball was like the first kind of lifestyle sport. I mean, now we have a lot of them. I think the X Games and Red Bull have kind of made you know snowboarding motocross you know all those pretty big but what was it like from a player's perspective with getting sponsorships Uh, because you guys had a lot of big companies on board you're right it was maybe one of the two original lifestyle sports the other being surfing and usually when one was up here the other was down but they they would often mirror each other or be the opposite you know maybe surfing would go into a lull and beach volleyball would then go up and you're also right if the X Games had come on, you know, come along 20 years earlier, beach volleyball would have probably been huge. But then it went, you know, when they came out, beach volleyball was too tame and you got to have like 50 mile an hour street luge and motorcycle pole vault and (laughs) all the other things you do because they're looking for uh, (laughs) more death defying feats. But um there were, we had a massive following and the guys like Sinjin, Randy, Tim, uh, that is Hav, Dodd and others, uh, Akfro, Louie, uh, tons of uh, Adam Johnson and many others did a great job uh, promoting the game and, it, uh, and promoting the lifestyle. And so there was a, a tremendous following. I still have people come up and say, yeah, I used to, you know, go to your tournaments and Cape Cod every year when we'd go there or Belmar, New Jersey, or Chicago was one of the first places we ever played. It was a great stop. One of the first places outside of California, but there were massive followings and, and really passionate followings um, in, in some of these other areas of the country, because they might only get to see us a couple of times a year. And, and we love playing out there. They were really passionate about their volleyball. Do you think I've got that, time for probably one more question, and then I'm going to have okay. to run, guys. Perfect. I know we've, um, we'll kind of circle back to, to what you're doing now then. Um, we've mentioned a lot about adapting, um, and obviously you have adapted to quite a few different scenarios in your career, and I, I think that uh, a pandemic is maybe even a new wrinkle. Um, but how have you had to adapt, uh, and successfully so, as a coach with your team? Um, I mean, try you're in a similar circumstance where you have a date. Tokyo is what we're training for then that date gets thrown out another year. And so you, I mean, Karch, you're in a different scenario than try, obviously, because you have a, a team of, I don't know, 15, 16 women, you have to help adapt as well. And I, I was wondering what, what your process has been like this last year or so, where everything that you've been planning for, for an entire quad is now shifted and sort of thrown upside down and twisted around. There's a lot that swirls through people's minds. If somebody was injured, they're super thankful to get the extra 12 months. If somebody was really crushing it and just hitting their stride, they're like, dang, I wish I wanted to go to the Olympics this year, not next year, uh, because I was in such a great rhythm. Uh, Ultimately, we're approaching it as that, uh, and every team gets this extra time, but we're gonna try and use that extra time and be happy for it in terms of uh, an extra 12 months to sharpen our swords, an extra 12 months to prep for competition, even if we didn't ever get, we never got to, and no team, I'm not saying this is just us, but no team ever got to train together at all this year, no national team. 
no Serbia or Italy or anybody. The, the summer was just gone. The most we had, we did have people here in Anaheim. The most we were allowed in our protocols was just to play three versus three, uh, a lot of deep court. So one person at the net blocking or and setting and two people hitting out of the backcourt to keep away from each other at the net more for, again, for COVID protocol. And that was just really good, I think, for all around play. When you play in doubles and triples formats, you have to be a better all around volleyball player, have to read the game better, defend, play all the skills. So that was good for our specialist players, especially for our middles and our opposites to learn to become better all around volleyball players. But I guess the other thing is, you're, as you said, just adapting uh, and adjusting um, a lot more remote meetings, Zoom meetings, things like that. But I think everybody is hungry and looking forward to getting back together uh, for the first time since uh, late September, early October of 2019 to actually all be in the gym together. Um, because this year's training was all volunteer. If somebody wasn't comfortable coming to to California, to Anaheim to train, that was completely okay. Um, or if somebody wanted to take care of a relative who was ill or just for whatever reason, uh, people did not have to come here even though we still uh, kept them accountable in terms of physical workouts and lifting and, th and fitness and things like that. But um, it's been a learning process. Uh, everybody's had to learn their way through this. And so it's been great practice at coming up with new solutions for sure. Awesome. Well, Karch, thank you uh, so much for, for your time. Uh, it was uh, great to talk to you again, too. And I know that you're, you're super busy, so um, appreciate your time. And uh, it was great talking to you. And I hope, uh, hope we can have you on again uh, in, in a couple, not too long. Thanks, Karch. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, great to it. visit with you guys. Try. Good luck. I'll be cheering you guys on. And uh, Hopefully, we'll be doing a little work together toward uh, things like medals in Tokyo. So uh, we're cheering all the Americans on to a, the strongest performance possible. Men's indoor, men's beach. Women's indoor, women's beach. Fitting, the whole thing. And, uh, and to go for another epic performance like, uh, like in Beijing with all the, all the medals. So cheering everybody on. But, uh, higher levels of performance. So yes, thanks, guys. Best of luck, Karch. Karch, appreciate it.